and and I just knew that this day was coming. I didn't know when, but I knew this day was coming. I'm Bob Gresh, and that was Bevo, Mike Bivens. Recently, Dana and I crawled into the two red leather chairs in our living room, the very place where our marriage hit ground zero. With some years of healing under our belts, we decided to sit in this very spot, get on Zoom, and thank all the people who helped us walk out our redemption story. And Mike was one of them. How are y'all? Hi. In the the midst of royalty again. Here we go. (laughs) We love you. Man, I love y'all. It's been a while. Good to see you. Mike's a great businessman. He owns a couple of transportation companies in Tennessee. He's not a therapist or a pastor. He's someone who's walked out his own redemption story. These days, he pays it forward. Well, you helped us experience freedom. You also helped us. You started a lot of fights. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yes, yes. I feel like every almost every time we met with you we would blow up yeah (laughs) yeah yeah you were learning how to have healthy friction instead of that friction that that causes just crazy fires right there were a lot of crazy fires in our marriage we worked with mike before the red chair confession session and to be honest a lot of what he was teaching us just didn't kick in yet. We didn't quite understand it or take it to heart or whatever. We just weren't ready. In fact, when we sat down with him recently, we wondered if we'd done anything right. So Dana asked him. What did you see us do well as uh, we were working through our stuff? Do you remember anything? Yeah. You both had buckets of want to. Throughout all of the stuff, guys, I'm not going to, because think about this just for a second. I'm not going to label anything good or bad. Because a lot of the things, the very worst thing that at the time that happened to me turned out to be the very best thing. Mm -hmm. Paul and the old boys, they get tossed in jail and they would think, and they're in there singing. But what you guys have, and, and I just knew that this day was coming when full redemption would take you both over and you would pull back the curtain and let everybody see your hearts. You weren't quite ready until this got really solid and I'm pointing at your I'm I'm pointing at your relationship here when you two got solid then you say okay let's pull back the curtain let's let everybody in let them see our hearts and let's start showing folks what it looks like to heal in the name of Jesus beautiful absolutely beautiful ready or not we're about to pull back the curtain hey there Welcome to the Happily Even After podcast, where you'll hear a story of a husband and wife who did not ride off into the sunset, but found themselves fighting a man's fierce battle with lust and pornography. Bob and Dana Gresh are raw, real, and honest. Their guests are wise experts in the work of marriage recovery. Some have degrees in therapy or psychology. I really believe that pain is God's gift rather than a problem. Others have learned their lessons on the hot pavement of life. I was just drinking myself to death, you know. They'll help you explore seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Oh, and by the way, you can live happily even after. Here's Dana Gresh. Hey there. Well, the response to the pilot of our little limited series podcast has been pretty much overwhelmingly good. Yeah, pretty uh, encouraging reviews like this one. 
Bob was scripted the entire time. He read every word as it was written on the page. Can you find another husband? (laughs) That was a good one. That was from your mother, by the way. That was not. That was your your mom wrote that one. No, there was just one podcast listener who said our only negative comment was that at times it sounded really scripted. And then she included a heart emoji. Well, that's what you do. Like down south, you say, bless your heart when you're really going to nail somebody. (laughs) It is scripted. I'm having a hard time with it. Okay. Well, we're going for a very NPR-ish tight storytelling podcast here. But we'll try to get better at reading, maybe. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. This won't surprise you, but the Happily Even After podcast is our first attempt at podcasting together. But we're good at being vulnerable. We've messed up a lot, but God's redeemed our marriage. Yeah. And we're walking through it. And it's hard. Yeah. It's not easy to do this. No, it's also not easy to read, apparently. But... Is that... (laughs) Let's read. (laughs) So in the pilot episode, we confessed that Bob and I had made a lie our refuge. Yeah, we talked about how we, we'd been pretending we were happy, but we weren't. I'm not even sure it was conscious in a way. I was fighting a private battle, and Dana didn't know it. Um, I was hiding it from her. And Dana was feeling the impact of that, but wasn't quite sure what was happening. So she was sort of medicating by staying busy, working really hard. Um, and I don't think she wanted to admit what was happening, did you? No, uh-uh. So that's what we mean by we had made a lie, our refuge. Maybe you have too. Well, this podcast is your invitation to make God your refuge. And his language is truth. The truth will set you free. Now, maybe the idea of hearing the whole truth from your husband terrifies you. You might fear that it will devastate you, and it may at first, but the truth, while not always pain-free, is never destructive. It always sets us free. Yeah, John 8, 31 and 32, you might know this. It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The kind of truth we want you to know is not a set of facts, but the details do matter. Yeah, disclosure is part of the healing process, and we'll get to that in a future episode. But the truth that will set you free is a person. Big T. Big T truth. Big T truth. Jesus is truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's John 14, 6. True freedom is found in a living, loving relationship with him. And as you abide in the words of the Bible, you'll come to know truth. You'll come to know Jesus more deeply than ever before, and you'll experience a whole new level of freedom. But that's easier said than done at times. Um, It can be hard to absorb the truth of God when you're mired in sin, when your heart is hardened by your sin. Or the pain caused by the sin of someone you love dearly. Like your husband. Or your wife. It's quite possible that you're questioning the truth of God right now. Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt. <laughs> whole closet of him. <laughs> Bob, was there a, a day in this whole process when we were just in the beginning of recovery that you just were ready to give up on Jesus? You just doubted it didn't work. Like, does the truth of God really work? Does it have efficacy in my life? I never thought the Christian thing didn't work. I thought I didn't work. Mm. So since I grew up in the church, I didn't really, 
I didn't really ever doubt that it was real, but I felt so broken that it seemed to work for other people and not for me. Some people are healed immediately from their addictions when they get saved. You and I are really different in these kind of things. So when are when would it be a time that you doubted God's truth? Mm, well, I did have a moment like that during this whole process. And when was that? Well, um, it was when you were at that first clinic, the one we talked about on the pilot episode, the one that didn't integrate the truth of God into the into the recovery work. Mm-hmm. During that time, I went to Nashville. I wanted to visit with Bevo and his wife, Debbie, and um, spent time with my friend Donovan Lear. She made me scones. Mm, they're good. Nice. Yeah. Comfort food. And we walked and we prayed and we walked and we talked. And you'd think after all that intimate conversation and prayer and spending time with Mike and, and Deb, I would not feel lonely. But when I left driving to the Nashville airport to go home, I felt suffocatingly abandoned. Hmm in a way I've never felt before in my life. By me? Mm-mm. By God. In all my life, I don't think I've ever doubted my faith the way I did that day. And as I left Donna, her comfort that held the loneliness at bay, um, it just disappeared as I was driving away. And I remember it was raining, and the windshield wipers were working so hard. And I was listening to the radio, and a song came on that I'd never heard before. Lay your head down tonight, take a rest from the fight, and don't try to figure it out. Just listen to what I'm whispering to your heart. Cause I know this is not anything like you thought the story of your life was gonna be. And it feels like the end has started closing in on you, but it's just not true. Oh, that's Glorious Unfolding by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Yeah, yeah, and the lyrics felt like they were written for me for that day in the rain. And the chorus told me to wait and be amazed. Now, my mom had always prayed, watch and be amazed, a verse from Habakkuk over my life, so I leaned in. And the chorus promised that my story was not over, but in reality, it felt so very done. And then I heard this. That's when I reached over and snapped the radio off. Through tears, I accused God, I did trust your promises. Look, are you watching? Did you see this? And then eventually my prayer turned into a pleading. Lord, if this is true, if I can trust your promises, will you prove it to me? I'm having a hard time believing that. Mm. I was in so much pain that day. For me, the disclosure day was graciously served up with this dose of numbness. But the weeks that followed brought some really hard moments, including wondering if I could really trust the truth of God. And that drive to the Nashville airport, that was my hardest day, my loneliest moment, wondering if really my husband and my God had abandoned me. Yeah, if you're walking through a story like ours, you're probably wrestling with loneliness right now, too. Yeah, and a lot of other deeply painful emotions like shame and fear and grief. So we want to tell you why it's essential to pay attention to those feelings. I really believe that pain is God's gift 
rather than a problem, it is this smoke alarm for telling us something's really wrong. That's Pete Kuiper, the founder of Crossroads Counseling of the Rockies in Buena Vista, Colorado. Buena Vista is known for stunning views, and it's a top destination for outdoor beauty and adventure. In fact, I had a moment with an owl there. And we know we all say Buena Vista, but they say Buena Vista there. They do say Buena Vista. So we weren't going there for the tourism no. or the birds. Uh-uh. Right. And after being apart, while Bob was at that first recovery clinic, we were meeting at Crossroads. It's a counseling center for couples in crisis. And there we would complete a counseling intensive together. Let's explain that. The conventional model for counseling and therapy is a 50-minute session each week. And it just takes forever to get through that. Um, We've grown to love this intensive model. Uh, You get a lot more done, and it's the one thing that really helped us. Yeah, the way it works is basically it utilizes longer sessions for a limited time. For example, treatment might be concentrated into daily three-hour sessions five days in a row. It was a total game changer for us. I don't think we could ever go back. Yeah, there are many counseling centers that offer intensives, and we'll put some links to some of our favorites in the show notes. Okay, now back to Colorado and Pete Kuiper. I got to Crossroads a week ahead of Dana by myself um, without a car. I had, Dana had gotten me a ride there with somebody, I guess, and, uh, which was awkward to begin with. Um, but it was a down time. So I didn't have a way to get around town. Um, so I went to a pawn shop and I bought an old bike and a backpack. Um, and I can't think that kind of kept me focused on what I was there for. And that was a lonely time because, uh, you know, it was kind of felt like the end of the road in a lot of ways. And I wasn't sure how Dana was going to respond when she got there. When I got there, I was in pain, physical pain. My back was still hurting from a recent injury. And I made Bob take me to a local pharmacy for some ointments, ibuprofen, cold and hot packs. I was a mess. Yeah, we drove Dana's rental car because... My bicycle wasn't built for two. (laughs) Right, Bob. My pain was, I really do believe this, um, connected to the emotional pain I was blocking. I was just terrified I'd fall apart if I felt it all at one time. And I was trying hard to shut my emotions off. But here's the thing. Pete Kuiper wouldn't let me. And we won't let you. I believe that every couple walking through what we've walked through uh, needs to hear what Pete has to say about pain. So we asked Pete if we could call him from here in our red leather chairs so he could coach you up. He said yes. We've grown up believing that pain is bad because we hate to feel it. And that's one of my favorite quotes is of Pete Kuiper is that pain is pain is painful. <laughs> and that's profound, isn't it? It is mm-hmm. profound. And because it's painful, we don't like it. And so we find every way we can to either numb it out or block it out or avoid it or self-medicate it because we want to get rid of that pain. Yeah. Some of the things I've used to medicate pain include food or screens, porn. I've used food too. And scrolling on media is a big one for me. Shopping, workaholism. But eventually you find that those things no longer drown out the pain. So you end up being more and more of your personal pain medicine. And you get stuck in a cycle of bondage with pain and medication. And eventually, you have to pay attention to the pain. One of our core teachings at Crossroads is that pain is actually not bad. It's actually one of God's most important gifts. Pain is always telling us there's a problem. The only question is, what's the problem? 
Hmm. And so <clears throat> if we use it as a smoke alarm, um, we can then start to realize what's really the problem. Not It isn't the sound in my ears because I hate that sound of a smoke alarm. It's telling me there's a presence of a much more serious problem that I'm aware of. Here's the thing about smoke alarms. They detect the things human nose and eyes cannot. They utilize a couple different kinds of technology to detect particles in the air. A good smoke alarm will warn you about hidden fires, such as electrical ones, and some will even alert you to a carbon monoxide leak in your house. Emotional pain is like that. It's warning you that something is seriously wrong, but it's usually something you don't see, something at the bottom of your iceberg. What's your iceberg, you ask? It's just a paradigm that we like to use at Crossroads that that gets at um, the core of our of our um, of our decision making comes out of our belief system of what we believe to be true because that forms the basis for what we think about and then what we ultimately feel and then what we choose to do. Pete taught us that we're all icebergs. What's above the surface, our behaviors, is just the tip of the iceberg. Those behaviors are either holy and constructive or sinful and destructive. And just under the surface of the water lies our emotions, which are informing our behaviors. Now, our emotions can be healthy or unhealthy. Even the ones we don't like to feel, like pain and disappointment, even loneliness, can be healthy and useful. These are messages from God that something's not right. The smoke alarm. Then there's a third layer to your iceberg deeper down under the water. Your thoughts are informing your feelings. But be careful, our thoughts are either accurate or distorted, one of the two. And uh, so much of psychology today is about dealing with the top three layers of the iceberg, addressing distorted thinking and helping us to try to think more clearly and accurately and, and then changing how we feel, dealing with depression, anxiety, fears, and so on. And then looking at the, the choices of behaviors that we make that that are destructive, that are unhealthy. But if we uh, really want to get a handle on those three things, we need to pay attention to where it's coming from in terms of our belief system. Yeah, that's the fourth and lowest level of our iceberg, our belief system. From a Christian perspective, our beliefs are either true or false. There's, there's no in between. And so the core iceberg model is that what we believe to be true, if we are buying into false beliefs, that's going to distort the way we think. And then we're going to feel a lot of unhealthy emotions of fear, anxiety, whatever. And then we make bad choices. And that's where a lot of addiction comes from, is just making choices out of core false beliefs. Here's why Pete says pain is like a smoke alarm. If we use it properly, it's going to help us to pay attention to what's at the bottom of my iceberg. What lies and false beliefs that have seemed to be true are driving how I think, feel, and do. Okay, let me say something that could be controversial, I suppose. You can't just stop sinning. I mean, you have to. You, you really have to. But to do that, you've got to change your beliefs, the false beliefs in the bottom of your iceberg. It's not easy. To help us understand this, Pete played a clip from one of the most popular sitcoms in the 1970s, The Bob Newhart Show. It was filmed in front of a live audience, so you're going to hear laughter in the background. And go. <laughs> go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh... 
as many of you know, in the sitcom, Bob Newhart played a psychologist whose interactions with his wife and his patients and friends led to a lot of funny situations and dialogue. Well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. Here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> Watching that clip hit close to home for me. You see, one of my really wacky symptoms of this whole experience was claustrophobia. I had to, for example, take my 80-pound dog Moose on my tour bus with me during this time because I was terrified of the bunk. Elevators? Horrifying experiences. The fact is, Dana never struggled with this before I disclosed my sin to her. I knew my emotional response was irrational, but I also knew stop it was not going to solve my problem. Telling a woman who's struggling with claustrophobia to just stop it that's not usually showing the compassion of Christ that we're asked to carry, but he did make it pretty funny. Bob Newhart. Yeah. Yeah, he, he did. did. <laughs> and telling a man who's deep in the grip of lust and pornography to stop it doesn't work either. What does work is figuring out what lies and false beliefs are driving the unhealthy emotions and behaviors. Yeah, and it might help to hear the story of someone who identified the lies that were driving how they thought, felt, and acted. I'm thinking of a girl named Chloe. That's not her real name. Yeah, the story you're about to hear is rated PG-13. It contains some sexual content. So here's Dana telling Chloe's story at our Pure Freedom Masterclass in 2019. Chloe is a friend that I observed for a lot of years. I watched her grow up through middle school and high school. And she was kind of one of those model Christian kids in your community. Obviously a phenomenal student, was active in her youth group, was celebrated as an athlete, just kind of you looked at her and you were like, right there, that's what everybody's trying to raise. This child is amazing. Um, so I was a little surprised when she connected with me and asked if I would meet with her a few times because she was experiencing a problem and she thought maybe I could help. And the words she used were, I feel like you might be my last hope. Well, when somebody says that, you at least take some time to figure out who to get them to, right? When she came to me, um, I realized that I could probably help her because it was a territory that I had helped a lot of girls through, unfortunately. You see, Chloe had, since middle school, despite her absolute love for Jesus, despite her great discipling, despite being a leader in her church community, and she was a leader on the campus here at Penn State, was in her words, giving oral sex out like candy. 
Now, if that surprises you, you're probably one of the older people in this room, and you might not be aware of just how common and casually oral sex is being treated today. Um, Donna Fritis, who is, as I've said before, an intellectually honest secular researcher who I greatly respect, writes this in one of her books. On a number of occasions, students I have surveyed and done focus groups with claim that oral sex and kissing basically stand side by side on the spectrum of sexual intimacy. Oral sex has turned into the new making out. Children beginning in fifth and sixth and seventh grade are experiencing this just as a normal rite of passage in how they interact with one another. If you're not shocked by that, you're probably younger and you know how common that problem is. Even so, I was shocked that Chloe was struggling because I knew she knew what was right and what was wrong. In fact, her coming to me for help was evidence that she knew that it wasn't right. I said, well, what have you done in the last few years to help with the problem? And she said, well, since I was in eighth grade, I've been in accountability and mentoring. The thing is, I tell someone, they tell me, okay, we're going to set up boundaries. We're going to meet weekly. And then I do it again, and I become so embarrassed and so ashamed when I have to confess it to them time after time that I stop. And I just act like it's okay until I'm overwhelmed by the shame again. Then I find someone new to talk to and I confess it and they set up boundaries and they do the accountability thing. And then I fail again and again and I feel ashamed and on and on it went. So I spent, I met with her maybe, I think I met with her three times. Now, when I start to meet with someone, I am immediately beginning to look for what I think might be the lie they're believing that's leading to the sinful behavior that they're struggling with. But as I met with Chloe, I could not see it. I could not imagine it. She really was a girl who seemed to have so much together that it wasn't an obvious lie that was deep in her heart causing this behavior that she did not want to be in her life. So we entered into our prayer time. I trusted God's spirit. I was like, God, I don't see this, but I know that you do. I know that you're interceding before the Father right now for Chloe in a way that I can't ever, and so help us. And as we progressed in these six steps, as I prayed her through them, suddenly I saw her face. I read on her face that she'd found it. Her countenance just changed. A tear began to slip down her cheek, and she looked up at me. She said, I, I know what it is. And I said, yeah, what is it? She said, I have to perform to be loved. And she told me about a moment. She has a great dad, a great dad, an, I mean, all-star dad. But she had a memory from elementary school when she brought home a grade that wasn't that great. And her dad said, oh, Chloe girl, you can do better. Now here's the thing, as children, we are great observers and terrible interpreters. And we can take something that means little or something that means something very significant and distort it to mean something that it doesn't mean or to mean something very lethal. And on that day, Chloe's little heart started to believe 
that she had to bring her dad A's to be loved. And as Satan works, he adds more and more experiences to our life. And she had encounters with coaches. She had encounters with teachers. She even had encounters with friends that fed this lie that she had to perform to be loved. And so we proceeded through our prayer time. We found a beautiful truth of God. It was a very, very complex truth. It took us a long time to get to it. Well, let me jump in here. When Dana and I pray with someone, God's Spirit often brings them an understanding to interpret painful events in their life through a a more mature thought process. That in itself is often enough to kind of begin to uproot the lies, but we also take them to the Word of God for their truth. What we're trying to do is help them find Scripture um, to meditate on as they seek to let the Holy Spirit inform their life. So Chloe left that prayer time armed with a list of Bible verses to focus on, but then she needed to start living out of that new belief or the old one would come back to haunt her, along with her sinful behavior. Here's Dana again showing how that unfolded in Chloe's life. One of the things I did, I said, okay, Chloe, so what are we going to do? We have to walk this truth out. You don't have to perform to be loved. You are loved because you are. So that week she had a big test on Friday. So on Thursday night I said, let's not study. Let's go out for, there's this place in town that sells killer cookies big old hot chocolate chip cookies with ice cream melting and hot fudge and amazing. So we blew off studying time and she got, mm, I don't know, a really horrible A minus or something like that. This is a girl with a 4.0 in college. I said, now go tell your dad about your A minus. And she did. And he was like, okay, whatever. And she's like, oh, well, Aren't you disappointed? Isn't that a bad grade, Dad? It's not a 4.0. I'm going to mess with my GPA. And he's like, I love you no matter what your grades are. I've always loved you. And she said, wait, wait, wait. There was this time. And he wept with her. He wept with her as a father who wounded a child and never wanted to wound. And you know what? The behavior stopped. The behavior stopped. It was so fun. About two years later, she contacted me and said, hey, I'm engaged. And guess what? Not one time, not one time since we prayed, have I even really been tempted. Listen, we have to go after the root. We have to go after the root that's causing the sin and destruction in our lives. If you, if you try to control thoughts, feelings, and behaviors with modification and accountability without changing the beliefs, the root will grow back. You know, not everyone experiences the sovereign deliverance that Chloe did after Dana prayed for her. Some of us have to have more nurturing to fix our faulty beliefs, but if we cooperate with God's Spirit, we can experience relief. But hear me on this. Well-intentioned Christians who just tell you to stop it often inflict even more damage and shame. Mm -hmm. You've got to get to the bottom of the iceberg, find out what lies are driving that behavior or those emotions. And I think... We see God doing that with Cain, you know, the first sibling to struggle with insane jealousy, the kind that leads to murdering his brother Abel. Well, before that crime, God comes to him and asks, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? 
We have to ask why a college girl would struggle habitually with oral sex or why a man would become addicted to pornography. That's how we get to the false beliefs and lies in the depths of our icebergs. Yeah, the psychological world came up with this iceberg model by observation, but without the Word of God, it missed some things. The Bible already taught us that what's stored in the deepest part of us drives how we think and feel and what we do. Let me read to you from Pete's book, At the Crossroads. The word the Bible most often uses when referring to the belief system is heart. Rarely is it referring to the organ that pumps blood. It's referring to the deepest part of who you are as a human being. Jesus points out, for a man's word depends on what fills his heart. A good man gives out good from the goodness stored in his heart. A bad man gives out evil from his store of evil. That's Matthew 12, 35. Yeah, Pete goes on to say this in the book. What is going on in the heart, the belief system level, is driving everything you think, feel, and then do. The familiar proverb says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or, as an old Southern man drawed, what's in the well is what's going to come up in the bucket. <laughs> yeah, I love that sentence in the book. You know, it's a good thing we had buckets of want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know why we did? Because um, we had a core belief about marriage. It's a sacred picture of Christ's love. It's forever. Um, so that was a true, really a core belief in the bottom of our iceberg. Want to is what came up in our bucket, <laughs> yes. Bevo would say. And that's one big reason why we're still sitting here in these red chairs. Mm -hmm. But not everything in our belief system was okay. We had some lies to identify, and Pete helped us, starting with fixing what we believed about pain. Being open to to, uh, looking at the ways that we have self-medicated, the pain relief coping strategies we've used, and then challenging those things and asking God to help me to see pain within, in a new light, that it's his smoke alarm um, to tell us a, that there is a problem. So we shouldn't turn the pain off. Right. As, so learning to listen to pain as a teacher, it's teaching us what we're actively believing. And going back to the iceberg, um, there's a big difference for all of us, as even as Christians, between what we call our formal beliefs and our functional beliefs, the formal beliefs being our theology, what we know to be true and what the Bible teaches, but our functional beliefs are what we actually live out. And so often what we say and do doesn't line up with what we profess to believe. Yeah. And that, that is um, an incredible, why would the world want what we say we believe when we can't live it out? Exactly. That's why we're called hypocrites so often as Christians. And that was really one of the motivating factors for me in working through things was um, I deeply want to be a testimony for Jesus. I want people to know how amazing Jesus is. Mm -hmm. But if we couldn't figure this out, then what efficacy or power did he have in our life? And as long as I was medicating with workaholism, busyness, whatever it was, control, as long as he was medicating with his choice medications, we weren't going to the source of Jesus to, to mm-hmm. fix that pain so that it was an ultimate fix. Right. Exactly. So the idea of, of looking at, at pain is something helpful. I mean, there's nothing glorious about just feeling pain, but if, if we're listening to it and paying attention to what it's teaching us, that's really going to make a difference. Mm. And it's, it's then 
listening to what our pain is trying to tell us about what the battle for our heart's all about, what lies, false beliefs we're buying into, and and uh, what we can then start to do to to challenge those those enemies and and uh, start to experience victory in terms of applying God's truth in those areas. When you're working on your marriage, you can't turn your emotions off. They're trails to follow. They will take you to the root of the problem if you let them. Emotions communicate what's going on in your heart. So your emotions are like the skin of your soul. So when you touch something hot, your skin feels it. That's how your emotions will warn you when your soul is in danger. Mm -hmm. And that's a very good thing. If you shut your emotions off... Well, the Bible calls that hardening your heart, and nothing good comes from it. Proverbs 28, 14 says, Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You've had enough calamity. It's time to soften your heart and let God's truth take you down a better path. Yeah, so here's truth number one. Emotions are an essential ingredient of intimacy. This podcast is brought to you by Pure Freedom and Moody Publishers. Here's Bob Gresh. God built us to need a very specific medication for our loneliness, and that's intimacy. I once had a friend tell me, do you remember Sam and Evie Nottnerus? Yeah, yeah. Uh, his definition of intimacy was into me see. Which I'll never forget that. It's been 20 mm, years. I like that. So, man, your emotional presence, that letting her see into you is what heals uh, in her, a lot of the things that you've broken through your sin. And wives, your emotional presence is the medicine your man needs to heal from what pornography and lust has done to his heart. You know, I spent a huge portion of my life feeling lonely. For me, that, that toxic feeling of isolation became really uh, heightened when I discovered pornography. Here's Bob speaking to students at our alma mater, Cedarville University. I, I first saw pornography when I was 13 years old. And I remember it to this day. And I know gentlemen that I can talk to people that are 50 years old that will identify with what I'm saying. I can tell where I was. It was in the attic. I can tell we had an old farmhouse and the, the, the glass was old. It wasn't consistent. So the, the dust, I can see the dust in the air. It was hot. I can see, unfortunately, the side of the page. I can see what the magazine looked like. And um, it grabbed me. And waste a lot of my life. Since then, I've also heard about other sinful moments in Bob's journey. Moments I wish never happened. Not going to lie, it hurt. But I had to choose to block my emotions or enter into the hard work of talking about them with him. And next week, I'm going to tell you what happened when I allowed my heart to get hard and to resist this work. It took me nowhere good. I'll use Ephesians 4.19 right now to tell you where my hard heart led. It reads, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So I'm going to stop there. Alienated. That's where my heart went. What does that sound like? For me, it sounded like loneliness. Here's why we keep mentioning the emotion of loneliness. A 2018 study of more than 1,200 participants verified a strong correlation between pornography use and loneliness. Yeah, people who viewed pornography were more likely to experience loneliness, and lonely people were more likely to look at porn. Yeah, it's kind of a which comes first, a chicken or egg kind of thing. But one thing's for sure. If there's a porn problem in your house, there's also a loneliness problem. 
So let me keep reading Ephesians 4.19. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Hardening your heart is a highway to sexual sin. You know, if only I could go back to my 13-year-old self and urge that kid to tell someone. Hmm. The truth is, even now, after a lot of healing work, I have to make sure I continually make sure I'm telling others what I'm feeling deep inside. Yeah, we've gotten better at it. We tend to talk about our pain in real time now. But even I was surprised, Bob, that day we were sitting here in our red chairs talking to Mike Bivens, Bevo. Well, we talked to him the day after the first copies of Happily Even After arrived at the Gresh house. I have a question to ask. It's, I'm almost afraid to ask, but I, this is hard for me. This book is hard for me. Sure. And I wonder if that's a good, I wonder if that's just me not being, just carrying around shame or a healthy guilt of this isn't something that I'm proud of the things I've done in our marriage. Yeah. The, the mistakes I not, you know, the, the big falls. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about your days doing the worst in your marriage, how, how do you feel about them? Are they easy to talk about? Do you feel just redeemed and that's all behind you? Or do you feel uh, uh, hurt for having done that. Mike and his wife, Debbie, have quite a redemption story. In fact, you're going to hear it in a future episode. Oh, man, yeah. There's there's always the scar. You know, there's always the remembrance of that. And there's always the, and uh, it's not, you know, I'm either going to, well, I'll call a timeout on myself. There's a reason why the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield, right? It's because everything behind us is behind us. And so just each time I'm learning to turn the page to, so to dive into where you are a little bit, it took me years, Bob, to even say I was sorry to Deb because of the embarrassment. So then I started learning, okay, I am who he said he knew. I, he knew we were going to do that. And he still emptied out the tomb. That is full on redemption there, man. So I'm I'm just I just drink it in. I'm going, all right, Lord. Hey, thank you. Thank you. So when I start to because the the last little piece on that, because when I start to have that inner self say uh, damning things, I'm raising myself over the empty tomb of Christ. Mm. And I'm going, no, Christ took care of that. I was yeah. reading we just got the book yesterday. And I was reading the the endorsements, which there's a lot of endorsements in there. And you're yeah. one. And I had a bad end of the day because some of the people wrote endorsements that talked about the problems in marriage and us working through them. And then a lot of them were like, uh, if you've experienced what Dan has experienced, which is a sexual betrayal and lying of a spouse. Mm-hmm. This is a great book that the Greshes wrote. None of them are exactly worded like that, Mike. <laughs> there is sexual betrayal, and, and, and I, there's a, and I, I love it. I, I was embarrassed. Like I didn't. I thought 
everybody's going to read those endorsements. And how should I, I guess there is a healthy level of that's no fun to read. Right. Well, it's not you. That's the old you. That's the old you, you know? And so for on her side of the fence, you know, there'd be a lot of people going, man, you should have cut bait and ran a long time ago. There will be a lot of people that say that. I, I mean, I thought through that as I wrote the book. Yeah. And so the thing is, and going, then when do we get to show a world what grace looks like in the most craziest of crazies? There's grace for your story, even if you're in the craziest of crazies. But we're telling our story because we're living in the freedom that only comes from knowing truth. And by that, I mean knowing Jesus. That's where your intimacy really needs to begin. We don't have all the answers. We're not therapists or theologians, just a couple telling our redemption story. And we know that when we find common ground with someone who has experienced the same pain that we have known, it can erase loneliness. And that's something we'd like to do for you because we know what it's like to feel lonely and we know how to fix it. It starts with following the trail of your emotions to the false beliefs in your heart. That really requires intimacy mm-hmm. with, with each other. Yeah, and for us as wives, we need to be intimate with other women. And guys, you have got to get honest and real with other men. Here's R&B recording artist Jimmy Needham. I'd want to look this up, but I heard somewhere that, that the average age of first exposure is, is around eight or nine anyways. And so my age of exposure wasn't uh, all that unusual. dramatic or unusual. Yeah, Jimmy was nine when he first saw pornography. It was some friends uh, of mine who said, hey, there's a magazine buried under the rocks at the playground down the street. Let's go check it out. It was that thing. Mm-hmm. And that really began for me a decade-long addiction to pornography that wouldn't end for me until I was 19 years old in college. As a teenager, Jimmy had access to a computer in the privacy of his own room. It was all I did every day. It was just, you know, it was how I passed the time. Jimmy didn't begin to gain traction over his sinful desires until he started to pursue emotional intimacy. This required humility in front of other men. And I was blessed with just a really great group of guys, roommates in college, who we were all believers and uh, we all um, were fighting for the same thing. You know, 100% of us were struggling with it. In fact, you know, we lead a college ministry uh, at, at our church. And I would say, at least when it comes to the guys I interact with, it's it's almost 100% situation there too. Just it, that is the wrestle. That's the temptation. The access is there. Uh, but having guys to fight alongside me who can pray for me uh, and, and I them was a massive thing. It was a massive thing. I don't think it was possible for me to find lasting freedom without doing that in the context of community. It's not possible for any man to get lasting freedom without community, period. So, okay, but baby, here's the problem. I'm getting a lot of letters from women who are reading the book, and they're telling me that as they approach their husband and say, hey, baby, we need to get help. I want to see you get help. The men are saying, I don't need help. Yeah, even if that were true, it's very selfish because the question is, does your wife have the help she needs? Does she feel safe in the help you're getting? And I think that um, if her journey is not over, then yours isn't either. I can guarantee that. But Dana's not the only one getting letters from wives. Yeah, that's right. Dim Daly of Focus on the Family read this letter on a recent broadcast. 
she said, my husband cannot go one day without looking at pornography. I told him it's an addiction and he needs help. He refuses to get any help because he is ashamed. I don't want it in my marriage or our family. We have teenagers and I'm afraid they'll find it and think it's all right. This could be the end of our marriage if we can't find a solution. Do you have any suggestions? The problem, as far as I see it, is that she needs her husband to get into recovery. Yeah, that's how I see it, too. That's Rosie McKinney. She discovered her husband's pornography addiction on their honeymoon. And what I'm going to say now is so simple, and it makes so much sense, but yet, for some reason, we're not quite getting there yet. And that is, what is the reason that most married men get into recovery? You know, do they suddenly feel convicted one day? Some, maybe, a small minority, but what actually gets guys into that therapist's office is their wife forcing the issue. Tremendously painful about a wife being brought to a place of desperation and pain where she has to force this issue. Rosie was married to Mark for only eight days when she forced the issue, ending their vacation abruptly rather than believing the lie that it would just go away or it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, Mark got help from a community, but Rosie needed it too. So she did something kind of resourceful. She typed up a note, printed it, and gave it to Mark to hand out at his weekly recovery meeting. Yeah, let me read that note. This is from her book, Fight for Love. She wrote, Hi, my name is Rosie, and I'm a wife of a man who attends the same group as your husband. It's great that our husbands are getting support, but sometimes I wish I had support too. I would love to be able to chat with someone else who gets it, and wondered if you felt the same. I was thinking of hosting a little informal get-together at my house next month. Is this something you'd be interested in attending? That's, that's genius. It is genius. Yeah. She's a resourceful woman. Yep, she is. <laughs> that was the beginning of an entire network of support for women in Rosie's home state. And it's burgeoned into a Facebook group that ministers to women in more than 100 countries. I highly recommend it. In fact, I'm a member. I'll add a link in the show notes. Today, Rosie is the founder of a ministry called Fight for Love. Here she is again. And so my whole heart, my whole passion is to tell women that they don't have to wait. You do not have to wait till your marriage is on the verge of a divorce, till you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. You can actually take proactive action right now. Yeah. If you know or suspect that pornography is an issue in your marriage, there are things you can do now to help bring him to repentance. Yeah, only God can bring a man to repentance, but I believe our wives are a great gift from the Lord when we aren't cooperating with God's Spirit. One of the greatest ways Dana has loved me is by pushing me to get help. I want to go back to 2017. That's when Bob and I were speaking to a group of a few thousand women at a Revive Our Hearts event. It was the first time we told our story publicly. When I was preparing my notes, oh, I was so nervous. I kept texting Bob. I wanted to know... Do I love you well? His answer was a great healing to my heart, and it was a reward for all the times I'd pushed him to get help. And well, when we shared our story on stage, he told the women what he'd texted to me privately. I've been thinking about how Dana loves me well, uh, partly because I got repeated texts about her speaking on this topic, and she wanted to know if she loved me well. And so I finally responded to one. And, and sat down and thought about it. Um, what I wrote in my text was, it's not when you cook for me, write me notes, or even when you watch football with me, as cool as that is. 
because people who don't love me will do those things. It's not when you say nice things about me because people who hardly know me sometimes can say nice things, right? And it's not even when you pray for me because people who detest me can pray for me. Dana loves me well when she does whatever it takes to push me towards the often lonely frontier of God's plan for my life. Dana loves me well when she does whatever it takes uh, to point out my sin and let me take ownership of it. Look, if your wife is asking you to get help, get help. Be brave. As women, we need community too. If you can't find it, be like Rosie. Start it. Do whatever it takes to break through the loneliness and the isolation that Satan's trying to use to keep you both bound up. Well, that's this episode of the Happily Even After limited series podcast with Bob and Dana Gresh. Be sure to check out the show notes at danagresh.com. If you don't already have a copy of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage, get one anywhere you like to buy books. Episodes one through seven of this podcast support key chapters in that book. They contain conversation prompts to explore the seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Hopefully you read chapter nine titled Truth Number One, Emotions Are Essential Ingredients of Intimacy. At the end of that chapter are some simple conversation prompts to exercise your ability to be in tune to your emotions and to grow in intimacy together as a couple. Men, step up. And if you're the one guy that doesn't need this, or who believes that one anyway, do it for your wife. The Happily Even After podcast is written by Bob and Dana Gresh. Original music and production by Blake Bratton. And thanks to Moody Publishers for underwriting this episode. Here's what's up next time. Hey, you kind of left Stephen Curtis Chapman hanging. Yeah, yeah, the glorious unfolding song. Well, that story had a completely glorious unfolding. See what I did there? I see what you did there. Yeah, and I'm, um, well, I'm checking with Stephen's people this week to see if I have permission to tell it. I'm not sure I actually need permission to tell it, but I think it'd be kind of cool if I did. Yeah, I love the story because it's, it's nothing short of unbelievable, and it's a major God story in my life. It set off a chain of healing in both of our lives, I believe. Yeah, so I hope they say yes. If so, in the next episode, I'll tell you how my sad drive to the Nashville airport ended. Also next time, we're going to dive into truth number two. Honest confession is the beginning of healing. We'll talk about disclosure. How to do it well, what to avoid, and why it matters. And I'm going to share about my battle with hard-heartedness and how God led me to confess to Bob in the middle of all this mess. We'll be sharing a unique tool that you have as a believer in Jesus Christ that makes disclosure safer. Are you a reader now? Are you reading now? I'm going to be the announcer voice. (laughs) You're supposed to say, nice reading. Yeah. Go ahead, say it. Nice reading, babe. Thanks, babe. But just in case it wasn't good enough, let's play some original music from Blake Bratton.